0: The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. May God grant us His blessing, His mercy, His grace, and His wisdom now and forever and unto the age of all ages. Amen. By God's grace, we've reached the midpoint of Holy Week. And among the events that we see today, Wednesday, is when our Lord is in the house of a leper named Simon, and the sinful woman comes. And anoints Christ with this very precious oil of hers. The gospel describes it as a very, very fragrant oil. And you know one of the one of the many, many beautiful messages that our mother, the church, gives us during this holiest week of the year is how how our Lord has this incredible way of accepting simple acts of genuine love from simple people like this woman. And you know, it isn't just here in the middle of Holy Week that the church reminds us of this. It's with this exact same message that our church began kicked off Holy Week for us back on Sunday, which was Palm Sunday, right? If you remember on Sunday, the church reminded us of Zacchaeus, right? Who had lived his life as a as a horrible thief taking from his own people. He was hated and despised, absolutely wretched among his community. And the gospel tells us that he was a short man, right? As Christ passed by, he wasn't even big enough to see Christ. And that's actually the meaning of it, the meaning of his, his shortness. He, he couldn't see Christ because of his condition, the condition of his heart but we see something else in Zacchaeus that he knew himself he knew his condition he knew himself for what he was he had he had no delusions of being righteous no delusions of being this you know good guy or even or even okay right he didn't he didn't think of himself as being any better than he really was and this is by the way as we're going to see the mark, the mark of a truly repentant heart. Our Lord even emphasized this with the parable of the, of the publican, the Pharisee, right? Praying in the temple. The Pharisee thanking God for making him such a great person while the publican can't even lift his eyes to heaven and he cries, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Similarly, Zacchaeus, he was aware of his condition and his, his simple act of love His simple act of faith. Climbing a tree, which, if you think about it, isn't an easy task for a short guy, right? I mean, it, it probably took a bit of a struggle for him to climb that tree. But he did so, so he could at least catch a glimpse of Christ. And Christ sees him and honors him by going to dine with him in his house. To which Zacchaeus responds... Responds to what Christ does with an immediate act of true repentance, right? This, which is uh, true repentance, which is really a self emptying, right? He says, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, 50%. You know, you know, back then, what was the Jewish tithe? The Jewish tithe was just 10% to give, 10%, right? So, Zacchaeus clearly he goes. Way, way above and beyond what is required, right? He doesn't just double the 10% tithe or triple it four times, four times over, way beyond the minimum. And then he says, if I have cheated anyone, I will give him back four times what I took from him. Right? Again, the Jewish law back then said that if you cheated someone, you'd have to give him back two times what you took away. But Zacchaeus, again, goes way over. Because this is coming from an abundance of a truly repentant heart. Right? He willfully empties himself. And he does it joyfully, not, about, not, of, not out of obligation. No one is forcing him or telling him to do this. This is the image of repentance. And then what happens after that? Christ accepts his repentance and answers, Today salvation has come to this house with Zacchaeus on Palm Sunday, and then again on Monday, if you think about it, with Zacchaeus on Palm Sunday, and then again on Monday, we see two different fig trees compared, contrasted with each other. Of course, we all know about the one we saw on Monday, the tree which our Lord withers because it bore no fruit. But with Zacchaeus, we see another fig tree You know, that's actually the kind of tree that he climbed that day to see Christ. It was a fig tree. And that fig tree, it did bear fruit. It bore the fruit of a repentant heart, right? The repentant heart of Zacchaeus, whom the Lord plucked out of that fig tree and entered in his house and dined with him, right? The church actually places this message, this very clear message of God's mercy And the acceptable true repentance, not just at the beginning of Holy Week that we just talked about with Zacchaeus, right? But at both ends, at the beginning and also the end. Because really, I mean, the church is bookending Holy Week with this message. Because this is really what our Lord's suffering and passion is all about. It begins Holy Week with the genuine repentance of Zacchaeus. And then all the way on the other side of Holy Week, another, right? We see another one at the very end of Holy Week. That great act of mercy of our Lord in accepting the simple and pure repentance of the thief on the cross. I mean, this guy was such a criminal that he gets the worst sentence of the time. Right? Crucifixion. The torture of publicly hanging on a cross till death. We know the thief on the other side leans over and curses Christ and says to him, come on, if you're really the Lord, do something about this and get, get us out of here, right? Then the other one, the one on the right, he looks over and he says, we are condemned rightly for good reason. Again, we see this, this mark, right? He is completely aware of who he is. We see that mark of true repentance. He has no delusions of righteousness, no delusions of being okay or justified for whatever crime he might, have, he might have committed. Right? I mean, think for a second. Imagine what he must have thought of himself if he thinks that he deserves crucifixion. That's what he's saying. He's saying we are condemned rightly for good reason. We deserve this. I mean, what could he possibly... What must he think of himself? But he, he continues, but this, sin, this sinless man is condemned with us. And then he looks to Christ there on the cross and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right. Which the Lord, again, just like with Zacchaeus, he accepts his repentance and, and answers him. right? Almost a mirror of what he had said to Zacchaeus today. Salvation has come into this house. He says to the thief today... You will be with me in paradise. And if putting this message both at the beginning and at the end of Holy Week wasn't enough for the Church to get this point across to us, the Church, right in the mo- middle of Holy Week, again reminds us. Right? We heard earlier today. It was both in the um, in the ninth hour in the morning pr- in the morning uh, prayers, and again tonight in the third hour the gospel account of that sinful woman who comes into Simon the leper's house to offer Christ this inc- inc- exceedingly, extremely precious thing of hers, this costly oil. Now, if you think, it, think about it for a second, we might ask, well, first of all, let's back up a bit. What, what, would, what could possibly make that, that ashamed, that, that totally shameful woman? I mean, look, she was a harlot, right? What would make a person like that bold enough to enter into Simon's house? I mean, she just walks into someone else's house and approaches Christ. Why would she do that? How could, how could someone that shameful do that? Clearly, it was because of our Lord's love and compassion. You see, what she, she recognized something. She saw something. The fact that Christ had entered the house of a diseased unclean leper. I mean, that's who the lepers were, unclean, right? And if you, remem- if you remember, w- there is this horrible stench associated with leprosy from the diseased skin and the open boils and the sores, right? And our Lord didn't even hesitate to enter. Such love, such mercy, such compassion. And she clearly recognized it, Right? And again, like the others that we just spoke about, she knew herself. She had no delusions of righteousness. She must have thought to herself, you know, well, if Christ is willing to put up with Simon's leprosy, perhaps he'll also tolerate the disease of my soul. And so she approaches him and she offers to him her precious oil. That is what made her bold enough to approach him the compassion that was clear within him. But of course, at the same time, we also see there in that same place someone else, right? We see Judas, one of Christ's own 12 disciples, who is there you know, with them, who looked and saw this loving act, and it's like something inside his heart just, just snaps, right? Something that had been slowly, gradually changing in his heart for quite a while. Without, really without, probably without him realizing it, right? Because he hadn't been paying attention to what was going on in his heart. All of the worldly things that he was attached to were taking all of his attention. And unlike the others, the other three that we just spoke about, he didn't know himself. And because of this, this very expensive oil being poured out on our Lord, for Judas Judas it's kind of like the last straw right? And remember, Judas was the one of the disciples, the one of the twelve who was in charge of the money. And he saw this, this act as just a complete waste, right? If you remember, if you remember the very, very first Sunday of Lent, I know that seems a, a long, long time ago now, right? But the very first Sunday of Lent, our Lord instructed his disciples, he instructed us to have treasures where? In heaven, right? That was the first Sunday of, of, of Lent, to have treasures in heaven, not on earth, where they can be taken away. Right? And what are, what are those treasures? I mean, ultimately, what are they? They're the things we seek. The things which give us satisfaction, comfort, security, happiness. Things that make us feel full. right? And we were asked about seven weeks ago or so to examine. Examine what those things are for us. Right? You see, for Judas, for Judas... The thing for him, his main passion, the thing which gave him security, which gave him comfort, satisfaction, was money, was wealth. And because he didn't watch over himself, because he didn't crucify his own passions, he was caught by the devil and made to betray his Lord. You know, Judas didn't want to betray Christ. He didn't want to do this. He simply wanted money. Right, I mean, this guy for three years had been one of the closest people to Christ himself. He was with him everywhere. He had witnessed all of Christ's miracles. He had heard all of, our, all of the Lord's words from his own mouth. He had prayed with him. You know, and he, Judas, he had probably even performed miracles or saved or cured people himself, right? Being one of the twelve. But even, even being that intimate and close to Christ chose to betray him for some money. 30 pieces of silver. Because because of that passion that he had. Because of his love. His enjoyment of this thing. You know, we have to know. We have to know that the devil, the devil is a very, very real presence in the world. And he is constantly trying to enter into every person who is close to Christ. And he tries to exploit our weakest links. In the case of Judas, it was money. I should ask myself, well, what's mine? Right? You see, the devil, the devil could the devil wanted Christ gone, right? But the devil couldn't get Judas to murder Christ himself. Judas would have caught on right away, right? If that was the devil's tactic, right? So instead he the devil uses Judas's passion, something that's already inside of him his desire, his greed, to make him betray Christ to those who, who eventually would see to it that he was murdered. St. Basil, whose, whose liturgy we pray on Sundays, right? He says this, St. Basil says, anyone who makes his belly a god, right? And remember, the church fathers, they talk, whenever they, or the church fathers talk about the belly, they're not talking about food, right, or eating. They're talking about all the desires, the things that we basically hunger for, the things that seem to taste and feel good to us, things we feed on to fill ourselves, to make ourselves feel full, vain entertainments, worldly success, pride, money, glory, self-centeredness, all the things that we do to draw attention to ourselves and so forth, right? St. Basil says anyone who makes his belly a God who puts any other desire before God doesn't really worship the Lord. And then he says something, he adds something after that line that really, really should 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 um, should hit all of us who are sitting here tonight really, really hard. He says this. He says, anyone who makes his belly a God doesn't really worship the Lord, and he adds, even though they may seem worthy of the visible assemblies. Now, wait a minute. What what does that mean? What's he talking about? What are those visible assemblies? What does he mean when he says, even though they might seem worthy of the visible assemblies? What are the visible assemblies? He's basically saying, even though they may come to church, if if their life isn't right, it doesn't work unless they purify their de- their desires. Now look, Judas Judas was see- certainly seemed worthy of the visible assembly. Right? I mean, look, he was there at the table with Christ with his disciples at the last supper. We seem to be worthy. I mean, look, we're we're all here in this visible assembly that St. Basil talks about, this church. But St. Basil says that anyone who is ruled by his passions, by his de- by his desires, doesn't really worship the Lord, even though they may seem to. And that's a very, very heavy message for all of us, right? It's really heavy. You know, we 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 never we never forget Judas. Not a week goes by through the entire year. We fast every Wednesday of the year, remembering and acknowledging his atrocity, right? Since since last night. We technically don't greet each other because of him, right? Tomorrow morning, you'll go around the church lamenting and crying out his name over and over and over and over, right? 20 to 30 times in a row, castigating, rebuking, admonishing him over and over. Every liturgy in that beautiful prayer before communion, we pray, I will not give you a kiss as did Judas. Judas. This terribly sad man is someone extremely important to us. Because we know, each one of us should know, and you know if we don't know this, may God help us, that there's, there's a little Judas, potentially, possibly, likely, in each of our hearts. Because each and every one of us is very often put into that exact same position that Judas was put into. And we have to look at our hearts to see which of our own passions... Which of our own worldly habits, which of our own worldly perspectives, ways of thinking, the devil will hook us with in order to cause us to betray our Lord. And if we think, if we think that we're better than Judas somehow, that he was just crazy or, or, or something, and, and we're not, we're quite mistaken. Just like Judas, every one of us has these passions, these desires in our heart, These things that we, we thrive on. Can be anything, right? Can be anything—from a love of a love of always being right, a love of being above others, a love of feeling and looking beautiful, a love of feeling free and doing whatever I want to do, a love for excitement and noise, a love for wealth. Any of these things, big or small, right? Which we cling to, can be the things that the devil can hook us with, unless we are really constantly watching over ourselves, and begin to realize that we really are filled with these. These passions, and there is potentially a little Judas within us, right? It's by thinking this and believing this that we don't become like him. Judas and the remembrance of Judas is very important for us so that we don't become betrayers. In his first epistle to the Corinthians, St. Paul says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Oh wait a minute! Really? Can, can, a, can a genuine can a genuine Christian betray the Lord? Can a sincere can an authentic Christian betray the Lord? Well, was Judas authentic? Absolutely, he was. Christ didn't choose any fakes. Judas was absolutely authentic. He was absolutely sincere. Judas wanted a Savior. Right? He did. He simply wasn't a man who watched over his heart. He didn't know himself. And he allowed Satan in. And the way it says it, it, says it in the Gospel of St. Luke and St. John is, is so frightening, really. It says the devil entered into Judas. He slowly, subtly inflamed his passions, his lusts, his desires. Right. The Lord went from being his master... Because in the Gospel, Judas does call Christ Master. There are several occasions in the Gospels where Judas says Master. Right? But he was in love with earthly things, even while calling him Master. May God keep that from all of us. On the Sermon on the Mount, Christ said, How many there will be who on that last day will say to him, Master, Master. And he'll respond with, why do, you, why do you call me master when you don't do what I say? By the end of this week, by the end of this week, all of us here will be rejoicing in Jesus as our Savior. All of us, all of us want him to be our Savior. But how many of us truly want him to be our master? You see, my, my Savior, he does something for me. He saves me. But my master, I do something for him. I obey him. He directs me, he commands me, and I follow. I can't have him be my savior without him being my master first. Where we do what Judas couldn't, we offer to him our master our passions, our desires, our jealousy, our anger, our lusts, our greeds, our drunken egos. And then as our savior, he grants us, he grants us the grace to love, to have mercy on others, to be humble, to have sober hearts. Right? We have to be very careful not to make our words empty when we call Christ our Lord and Master. We can't say this. We can't want this and not take His guidance seriously in our life. Right? Not just on Sunday or when we're in church. Right? There has to be a deep personal truth when you call Him Master, Lord, right? To be completely faithful to Him, right? is to have your eyes, your heart, your mind, your love fixed to Him always, everywhere. And by the way, the way you do that, the way you do that is by putting yourself under the guidance and the obedience of His church because it is what he instituted it is what he put in place to send you his guidance his practical guidance and look if you're not doing this right taking specific guidance and accepting the church's authority over you if you're taking the bible and putting it in your own hands and attempting to guide yourself with it you're pretty much guaranteed that you'll just end up deluding yourself regardless of your intention so this is this is what the intensity, the intensity of this Holy week is all about. That if the normal mix of my life is, I don't know, 98% world and 2% time with God and church, that for one week, for this one week, flip it, flip those percentages completely around. For one week, completely change the look and feel of my life and try to be the way God intended for it to be from the beginning. Right? I mean, really, this week, church takes over our lives. Right? That's what Lent is. That's what all the Lents and all the fasts of our beautiful church are. They're ways for us to change the look and the feel of our lives just a bit so that we can begin to make Him the focus of our lives rather than the world. But if we don't always do that, if we don't always make Him the focus, or I should say, really, when we don't make him our focus, because we all do this all the time, at least, at least we can, we can separate ourselves from Judas by not falling into despair. When we recognize sinfulness within us. We should not feel that reaching the, God, the holiness that God wants for us is just, it's just too far. It's too beyond reach, too hard for, you know, Lee, me. I'm just a, you know, an, an average Joe. Because, really, this was Judas's real problem. He recognized, he recognized that he had completely ruined his life. He betrayed the Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver. And instead of immediately weeping bitterly in repentance the way Peter had, he killed himself in his pride. You know, at one point, at one point, our Lord, our Lord says about Judas, possibly, One of the most frightening statements made about any person in the entire Bible. Christ says, Christ says, it might have been better if he were never even born. Oh my goodness. I mean, come on, what sin did Judas do that was so bad to deserve that kind of a condemnation from the Lord himself? I mean, most people would answer that question, well, obviously his betrayal. Right? I mean, he betrayed him, and that led to his murder. That's why. Well, if that was it, who among us would have any hope in salvation? Who among us hasn't denied and betrayed Christ in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts? Who among us hasn't betrayed the incredible love that he gives us always? As bad as Judas' betrayal was, and it, and it was bad, it wasn't his betrayal that led him to being condemned. Rather, his ultimate sin was that he lost hope in God's mercy. Because really, what salvation could possibly remain for someone who has given up hope in salvation? Someone that thinks that what God wants for him, holiness, is just beyond him. Someone that thinks that holiness is something they can never attain. Right? There is so much in Judas's story that we can relate to. I mean, look, we're all, we're all here in, in church on a Thursday evening, right? We can, say, we can say that we're close to our Lord, really close to Him, as was Judas. But we all have weaknesses, as did Judas. And the devil exploits these weaknesses. He enters into each of us through doubt, through distractions, which eventually lead to actions that are so destructive for all of us and, and for those around us. He enters into our marriages. He enters into our friendships. He enters anywhere there is good. You will find him trying to turn good into bad. Right? And you know, most of, most of our sins are not, are not sins of violence. But we can call them sins of affection gone wrong. Let me explain. Judas' betrayal itself you look at it, it wasn't really an act of violence. I ironically, it was an act of affection. Judas betrayed Christ with a what? With a kiss. A sign of affection. A sign of friendship. Right? I mean, who is it that we sin against the most? Our families, our friends, the ones whom we're closest with. And while we might never take up a weapon to hurt someone in a physical way, we all use our mouths and our minds as weapons to inflict an emotional type of harm on others. And by the way, on the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord says that when you harm someone in this way, it's just like murder. Look it up. It's right there in Matthew, the middle of Matthew chapter 5. The greatest sin of Judas was not greed. It wasn't even giving in to the devil or his betrayal. The greatest sin of Judas was simply his failure to repent. It was his failure to believe in the Lord's ability to forgive him and to love Him again, and to make Him holy again. Right? So if we can't follow our Lord faithfully all the time, when we don't follow our Lord, uh, our Lord faithfully, at least, at least when we fall, let's not be like that. Let's tell ourselves, I know I'm a sinner. I will get up and run to the Lord like that prodigal son did. I will get up and I will, I will run to the Lord who loves me, And I will ask for forgiveness. And he will restore me. And he can really, he really can make me, yeah, even little old me, holy. And he will if I let him. right? Because then when we do this, we're imitating Peter rather than Judas. And he'll restore us back so we can go back to the business of serving him as our master. But ultimately, ultimately, to be a Peter... And not a Judas, because they both betrayed. To be a Peter and not a Judas, we need something else that we that we see this week, something that we're going to see tomorrow night at the um, the sixth hour of the eve of Friday. What we what we really need in order to be like Peter and not like Judas, is our own Gethsemane. We have to be willing to struggle. We have to have a little agony, a little agony. That's St. Luke's word, by the way, agony. When Christ went to the Garden of Gethsemane, St. Luke says that he went and prayed, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. You know, the icon of our Lord there in Gethsemane praying, the icon of our Lord in Gethsemane. Does anyone know what it's called? It's called the Icon of Divine Agony. That's the title of that icon. Our Savior modeled our struggle for us, struggling to the point of sweat and blood and even even death. We have to follow our Lord in being willing to struggle, to struggle with our vices, our habits, our impulses, all of our desires, our false joys, our empty entertainments, our vanities, our lazinesses, our excuses. And the main way we do this struggle is by hope by really believing through that a, li- through a little bit of effort, through some effort, through some spiritual struggle, the Lord will approach us, He will change us, and He will prepare mm-hmm. a place for us with the saints. Right? Most of the time we don't struggle, though. Most of the time we're not struggling. At least with the things we're supposed to be struggling with. Because we're, not, we're simply not thinking of the next life. We're only thinking of this life. And the thinking about this life... It consumes us, right? And of course, if anyone asks, well, is this life all there is or is there something after? Of course, any of us would say, of course, there's something else. I'm not an atheist. Of course, I believe that there's life after death. But in practice, during the rest of our life, in practice, it's like we become practical atheists. And that kills our motivation to struggle. What would we struggle for unless we really, really believed that what's coming is so incredibly glorious? So let me, let me just wrap up tonight and finish with, with, one, with one last question. One question. Why, why didn't our Lord bring heaven immediately? I mean, after he died and rose from the dead, why not just end it then? Why didn't he bring his ki- kingdom right then? Why, at that point, I mean, he had defeated death and Satan. Why, why didn't he bring the devil into the lake of fire and let everyone who believed in him be saved? Why not just do it right away? The Lord has delayed his coming out of his goodness and mercy to give us all time to hear the gospel and to repent and to be saved. This is what St. Peter says in his second epistle. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, but he is patient towards all men, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting all to come to repentance. And so he sent his disciples out to the ends of the earth, and in the meantime, while doing this so we could all hear and become part of his kingdom and be saved, in the meantime, he left us something. He left us an incredible, a great consolation, a great encouragement, right? And that great encouragement, that great consolation, is that He is with us still. How is He with us? In the Holy Eucharist, in communion. This is one reason why our Lord institutes the Holy Eucharist right in the middle of all this that's happening. I mean, that, He could have done it earlier. He could have done it during the 40 days after His resurrection. right? You know, by now, by Wednesday night, we're getting into a pretty good rhythm of Holy Week, right? Morning Baschah, evening Baschah. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But then tomorrow, on Thursday, we totally break that rhythm of Holy Week to celebrate the Divine Liturgy and partake of Him. On Holy Thursday, we remember that Last Supper, that mystical supper when He took bread and He said, take, this is my body. And then He took the wine and He said, take this, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, right? Which is shed for you and given for the remission of sins. Do this in in living remembrance of me. He gave us the Eucharist so that we could be near him during this time when he is away, governing, ruling the world from heaven while sending his ambassadors, his preachers of the gospel out so that everyone could hear the good news of his victories and be saved, right? So here on earth, now, That Eucharist, that's our life. But one day it won't be. One day we won't be having liturgies like the one we're going to be having tomorrow morning because we'll simply be living in the presence, that real presence of the Lord forever. But until that day comes, until that time, there is nothing, there is nothing more precious than the Eucharist for us believers. Absolutely nothing. Because it is literally Jesus Christ Christ in our midst in our bodies in our very selves. And this is why it is the Eucharist that is the it, it is at the center of all of our celebrations. Right? In every sacrament, every feast is centered around the Eucharist. Because the Eucharist, it's our ultimate gift, our ultimate encouragement, our ultimate consolation, right? Tomorrow the Lord will say will say to his disciples, I'm going away. And they become so sad. They say, how can you abandon us like this? And and he replies, no, not so. And he took the bread and he says, this is my body. And he took the wine and he says, this is my precious blood. Every single time you receive communion, you are preaching his beautiful and glorious death and resurrection. And you are preaching to yourself and joining yourself with him. This is the incredible value of what our Lord does for us this week. But we need to do our part. Repentance. True repentance. Knowing myself. Having no delusions of goodness, of okayness, right? And allowing that pure repentance to just pour out of us. Like that, like that very expensive oil which we saw tonight the woman anoint our Lord with. It says that that oil is so rich that its fragrance filled the entire house. The fragrance of her repentance covered up what? Covered up what what was the other smell that was in that house? That that stench of leprosy, right? Which is a symbol of the of the disease of sin, right? The the beautiful fragrance of, of her repentance overpowered that completely. This week we're reminded every single day, each one of us is given this opportunity to richly pour out our love to God so that our own our own homes Our lives, our families, those around us are filled with that incredible fragrance of God's love for us. So we need to measure our love for God against that which we saw the woman show tonight. We need to measure our love for God against that which Zacchaeus showed. May we always fall down before Christ with love and kiss His most pure feet, begging Him, as our master to forgive our sins and to save us from all of our filth. May we, let me, may, be, may we be like that woman who rejoiced to empty, empty out what was most valuable and most precious to her and not like Judas, who simply lacked true and complete love for the Lord and then ended up becoming a slave of the devil. So remember, it wasn't betrayal that doomed D- Judas and it isn't going to be betrayal that's going to doom us. Repentance means changing direction, from the direction that takes us away from Christ to the direction that takes us towards him. So may our Lord, who suffered for our sake to save us, grant us that kind of repentance, a repentance as great as that of Zacchaeus, the thieving tax collector. May he grant us a repentance as great as that thief on the cross. May he grant us a repentance as great as St. Peter who again and again and again denied and betrayed Christ. And may he grant us a repentance as great as even that sinful harlot who covered the stench of disease and sin with the fragrance of her pure repentance. To our Lord be the power and the glory and the blessing and the majesty, now and forever and unto the age of all ages.